Let's pray. God, thank you for the day. Thank you for this family. And I, I love these guys, and I love that we can gather on a Wednesday night, open up our doors, gather corporately to get refreshed, Lord, because this world is a challenging place day by day as we work through the, the things under the sun and work through life here on earth, Lord. It can be draining. And uh, I know that even before I was full-time at church, if you want to say that, I remember the days of being dragging in here on a Wednesday night. And, uh, and so I just pray, Father, as your spirit does refresh and restore, it gives strength and hope. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this place tonight. God, as we just study this word, Lord, I pray that you would just remind our hearts this isn't something new, but it's good to hear again. And uh, we just thank you and praise you, Lord, that you're a good God. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working our way slowly through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think most pastors, as I looked at the guys I listened to, you know, um, Chuck Smith taught chapters one through six in one night. Uh, Damian Kyle did it, did all 12 chapters in about four sermons. Um, Joe Foch out of Philadelphia did it in about five or six sermons. And I'm on, this is like my fifth or sixth sermon already, and we're just getting to chapter five. And it kind of gets, the book of Ecclesiastes going this slow does kind of get monotonous. It kind of gets to the point where, okay, Solomon, you're saying the, pretty much the same thing over and over and over again, that life under the sun, life outside of the realm of God, removing God from the equation, life stinks. And he just keeps repeating that on, on, on you know, uh, he's got that message on repeat. And so probably after tonight, we'll start to move at a more rapid pace through the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll pull out the nuggets, because hopefully by now you've got that foundation. You understand that life outside of the realm of God, life outside of the hand of God, stinks. And that's the conclusion, if people are honest with themselves, Anybody you talk to in this life, if they get down to the nitty-gritty, that's what they're going to find is that without the that, that we were created for something eternal, as he said earlier in the book, that he imprinted eternity in our hearts, and that if we don't find that God meets us in that place, then our life is always wanton. We're always lacking something. We're, we're never fully or completely satisfied. Sin can satisfy for a season, for a moment. It's a, it's a momentary pleasure that needs to be replaced eventually. And generally, the, the sin that satisfied you yesterday won't be enough for today. It's a downward spiral. It's a, an appetite that forever increases that we have to find greater whatever it is, to satisfy us once again. And so that's the experience that Solomon is, is writing about. For us, it's good to recognize that he's done that, been there, done that. He's got the t-shirt on everything. There was nothing he laid his eyes to that he did not experience. He, whatever he laid his eyes upon, he let himself experience and so everything that we think of, well, I can't do this, but I'd like to do that. And if I could do that, it would make me happy. Solomon did it, and he said, no, it doesn't. And so we need to learn from Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. 
What I like about the beginning of chapter 5 is he actually takes a break from it. For just a, about seven or eight verses, and that's really all we're going to cover tonight, he, he almost steps back and says, let's, let's put God back into the equation, and let's talk about how, how life under the sun can affect life in the sun, S-O-N. How sometimes the life here on this earth, if we aren't careful and if we aren't engaged, will impact the way that we worship. And we need to, as Christ followers, need to be aware that that can happen, and I think we probably all are, but then also be intentional about combating against it so that our engagement with the Son, S-O-N, is everything it's supposed to be. So it's interesting the way that he looks at it. We're, we're going to kind of break it into three different categories. He addresses how we're supposed to act or what we're supposed to do before going to public worship, how we're supposed to act during public worship, and then how we're supposed to act after public worship. So basically what we're teaching tonight, and as I prayed, it's nothing new for all of us church folk, is I'm going to teach you how to go to church. <laughs> but sometimes we need reminded because we can fall into routines that would distract us from what is best. Good is the enemy of best. So we need to just make sure that we're, we're walking properly. And that's what Ephesians 5.1 says. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. We'll pause there. We are to walk prudently when we go to the house of God. So this is talking about gathering corporately. Now, of course, in that day, they, they, Solomon was talking about the temple, that they would gather together at the temple. They would gather together corporately. It's what you and I, we become when, you know, post-cross, post uh, post-Jesus living here on earth, you and I are the church. I think we understand that, that we become the temple because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, and so the church no longer is a building, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a people, but we still gather corporately as they did in that day in the temple. We gather in buildings and homes and, and what have you to gather together corporately. The importance of koinonia, the importance of fellowship is, is uh, strong, and so we, we continue to go quote-unquote, to the house of God. We gather on Sunday mornings, and if you're really holy, you come on Wednesday night. And so, well done, holiness people. Good job. But uh, and some of you are like, I, it wasn't my choice. You know, mom said, get in the car, and so <laughs> here I am. But uh, no, it, 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 walk prudently when you go to the house of God. What does that mean, walk prudently? I, I like to think of it this way, that we are to walk circumspectly. Right? We're supposed to know where we're going that we, we're aware of the path that we're on. We, we recognize the obstacles and we recognize the valleys and the hills. We recognize where the walk is going to be harder and where it's going to be easier. We, we consider and we pay attention to walking to the house of God. We pay attention to our preparation before coming to church. And we're supposed to do that. As individuals, as followers of Christ, we should walk through these doors every time we gather prepared. And I know that 
Sometimes it's easier on a Sunday morning because you're getting out of bed, you're getting breakfast. Sometimes it's not as easy if you've got kids to get ready and what have you than it is on a Wednesday night after working all day and rushing home to get dinner and hopefully a shower and then, you know, plowing out the door to try to get to church on time. But it, it, it doesn't much matter when we're coming to church. That shouldn't affect the condition of our heart. We should be intentional about readying our hearts as we come to church, being prepared to receive from God. We should be preparing our heart. We should be preparing to hear, and we do that by obeying. We're living out this faith and works thing that we kind of talked about on Sunday, that we would have ears to hear. Flip it over to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Jesus begins speaking in parables, and that was to kind of weed out who was actually paying attention, <laughs> who was considering and who was listening. And so he gives these parallel truths, that's what a parable is, to say, hey, are you trying to figure me out? Are you, are you engaged? Are you prepared? And then the one he speaks about in Matthew 13, the, the parable of the sower, is in fact about being prepared. It says in verse 3, Matthew 13, 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's what we are doing as we gather corporately at church. It's to hear from the Word of God. And so... He who has ears, and he, he gives us this story about four different types of soil, and he's going to liken it. If you flip down to verse 18, he gives the explanation. So in 18, he says, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. When the tribulation or the persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and, it, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and, understand it, and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And so Jesus gives us this picture of soil and and, and scattering seed is a, a parallel to how we are to 
live out our lives. And, and part of good having good soil is making sure that it's prepared. It's making sure that it's ready to receive the seed. And the way you do that is you, you take out the weeds. You turn the ground to make sure that it's not fallow, you, that it's not hardened. You remove the stones. You make sure there's good depth of soil there to receive that planted seed. Well, that's all, in my opinion, that's all preparation coming to the point of when the seed is scattered. And that's kind of what we're doing as we gather on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night and we listen to the Word of God. We're scattering the seed. So the question is, when you come in, how's your soil? Is it ready to receive? And I know that some of you think, and, and I've thought this for a long time too, and, and, and we can sometimes use this, well, isn't that what the time of worship is for? Isn't the time of worship for us to get our hearts ready? And I would say it can be used for that, but that's not the best use of worship. Worship isn't supposed to be about us and us getting our hearts ready. Worship is supposed to be about honoring and glorifying and, and praising His name. Well, in order to do that well, even as we gather together corporately, you have to come in prepared so that when the first chord is, is strummed, you're already engaged, the soil's already ready. You know, God can speak to you just as strongly through a song as He can through a chapter. The, 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 the songs that I picked out as a worship leader, the, the songs that Dave picks out or Michelle picks out, we, we, we strive to find songs that speak God's truth in, in, a, in a way that is, you know, it doesn't differ from the Bible. And so God can use the truths that are in a song just as well, sometimes more powerfully than what I'm teaching. Dave always used to say, if, if I'm, you know, as a preacher, if I'm worth my weight in salt, then what I say will get you to worship more. And, and that's, that's the hope of what I do. That's the hope of, of, of us teaching the Word of God, is that we would fall more in love in God, that we would bring Him more glory, that we would praise Him more, worship Him all the more. And so in order to do that well, on your drive to church, Fill the soil of your heart. Maybe you turn off the radio and, and just spend some time communicating with God. On a Wednesday night, oh, Lord, this was an awful day. It was hard. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm not, I recognize I'm not ready. Lord, send your spirit. Refresh me even now in the, in the car ride. Maybe it is turning on the radio to, uh, you know, uh, uh, some praise and worship to, uh, or some music to kind of get you your head engaged so that when you come together corporately, you're ready. Maybe it's, I don't know, speaking in tongues, going into your prayer closet and, and being willing to do that. Whatever it would take to prepare our hearts so that when it, the Lord would speak, we are ready to receive. We come to church because we want to hear from God, right? I mean, it's more than a social club. That's the sad part of so many churches today is 
the the social aspect of church has surpassed even that which you know the the teaching or the worship and while the koinonia and the fellowship is important and we don't want to diminish that the greater importance is that we would hear from god and so in order to hear we want to hear uh, be prepared so he said what does he say back there in the beginning of verse one walk prudently when you go to the house of god before we come to church we should be preparing our hearts are we ready as you walk through the doors and then it says and draw near the rest of verse one and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they not, do not know that they do evil. So, James, we read, you know, that we're, we're supposed to draw, we're, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Solomon says it too, we're to draw near to hear from God. Jesus said the similar thing. And we were drawing near to hear rather than the, the alternative would be that if we're not coming to listen, then we're just essentially gathering to offer the sacrifice of fools. Is that what you're hoping for when you come to church? <laughs> I don't think any of us are, right? I think I'll go to church today and I really hope that I'm foolish. That, that's, not your, that's not your goal, unless you're a 10-year-old boy. But and that's not even their goal. They just don't know any better. You know, the sacrifice of fools is that which means nothing to God. And if we aren't properly prepared and and properly engaged during our times of of gathering, uh, you know, corporately, then the sacrifice we offer, the things that we do here, it's just foolish. It's of no value. So during our corporate worship, once we arrive, once we come in through the doors, as we engage in song and as we prepare to, or as we listen to the word, how are we to, how are we to act? How should we act in church? Glad you asked. Verse two, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Um, I like the way the message kind of translates that verse 3. That, uh, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but uh, busyness brings many nightmares. Something along the lines. That's what the <laughs> a dream comes through much activity. It's, it's in all the busyness that we get caught up and we don't even sleep well <laughs> because of how busy we are. And it's similarly a fool's voice is known by his many words. It's interesting that we're studying James and we're studying chapter 3 on Sunday and the first line of chapter 3 is, you know, uh, don't be quick to teach. You're going to be judged by a stricter judgment, you know, because as a teacher, you don't have a choice but to speak many words. So you need to be cautious. Yeah, verse one of chapter of the book of James, verse, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse 19 
I've quoted it a couple times already. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Now, I had Michelle, I did ask Michelle to do that song, especially for tonight, that Matt, Matt Redmond song, Let My Words Be Few, because that's what we read, you know. Um, uh, God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. That's the way we are to engage with God. And so even though I just taught this a couple weeks ago on Sunday, I just copied my notes because we need to hear it again. I need to hear it again. We're not to be rash with our mouth, both with God and with others. I said, a closed mouth gathers no foot. <laughs> I still love that. A closed mouth gathers no foot. Proverbs 17, 27. He who has knowledge spares his words. And a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Uh, the next verse. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. The way I always heard it say it was better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and prove it and remove all doubt. Proverbs 10, 19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. We are to be quick to hear. We are better, we are to be good listeners. Hearing is one thing, listening is another. Listening implies paying attention. Listening implies... Never mind. (laughs) Slow to speak. And that doesn't mean that you speak very slowly. But that your words would be measured. Let it pass through the filter of your brain before it comes out of your mouth. Better yet, let it pass through the filter of the spirit before it comes out of your mouth. As I said, we need to implement that both on the vertical with our relationship with God, quick to listen, slow to speak in our relationship with God, but also quick to listen, slow to speak in our relationship with one another. Don't just listen to respond. Listen to understand. The Lord doesn't give requests. He gives us commands, and so we're to be quick to listen to Him. And slow to speak, our prayer is not to be taken lightly. We tread on holy ground. We should be quick to listen to others. Like I said, not just to listen to respond, but listening to understand. God gave us the ratio on our face. Two ears, one mouth. Quick to listen slow to speak. Two ears, one mouth. Keep that ratio, you're doing well. I like what John Bunyan said. God would rather hear a heart without words than words without heart. God would rather hear a, word, hear a heart without words than words without a heart, without heart. So we measure our words slow to speak, quick to listen because we want to receive from God. Flipping now to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. I love this 
picture. It's the, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah invites 450 of his closest pagan friends out to the mountainside to have this battle, a duel of the gods, if you would. And, uh, and he encourages them to set up their altar. They're going to pick out two, two bulls and the prophets of Baal. They're going to call on Baal to have him burn up the sacrifice. And then Elijah by himself is going to call on God and we'll see which God wins. That's basically the story of 1 Kings 18. And so kind of they get the altars all set up. And then it says in verse 25, Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bowl for yourself and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bowl which was given to them. He gives them the choice, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. There was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which, which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them, and I love this for Elijah, and said, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping, or maybe he needs to be awakened. Perhaps he's in the bathroom, and needs to be interrupted. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, three more hours. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And here's the contrast. And Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall bear your name, shall be your name. Then the stones he built, then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, he is God. Yeah. Yeah, get all the wood wet. Get the bowl wet. There's water running out of the trenches. There's you know water around, and, and the fire is so intense and strong that even the stones are consumed. That's pretty intense. 
What's the contrast I want to draw when, he, when I'm saying, let our words be few? Well, consider. Consider the prophets of Baal and how much time they spent crying out to their God. From the time of the morning till noon, and from noon until the evening sacrifice. They spent all day crying out to their quote-unquote God. Contrast that to the prayer of Elijah, just two short sentences. God, just show that you're a God. <clears throat> Remember, keep the perspective. He's in heaven. He's sovereign. He's over it all. He sees it all. Keep the perspective that He is God and He reigns on high. We have no need to fear. He knows what we need before we ask of it. Let our words be few. What about Jesus' prayer in the garden? It's interesting to look at. If you want to flip there real quick, just four verses. Matthew chapter 26. This is purely conjecture. I don't, I don't know this to be the case. But the way the story reads, is kind of interesting. In Matthew 26, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know the story. It's after the, the upper room feast. They move, they go through the temple and over the brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane where he will soon be arrested and he spends the night in prayer. And it says in verse 37 of Matthew 26, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that being James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And so he separates himself with these three guys, kind of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. The other disciples remain there in the, the garden, the, the oil press area, and he takes them a distance away. It says in one of the other gospel, a stone's throw away. So it wasn't extremely far. It wasn't like he walked all night to get to this point of prayer. A stone's throw, maybe, I don't know, 30 yards can you, can you throw a stone 100 feet, maybe? Whatever it is, it wasn't that far away. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch me with me. He wants them to pray. And, he, and then he goes just a little farther. He falls on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? So it's interesting, just the way it's told there in Matthew, they go a little distance away, which takes what? 30 seconds, a minute? They go, and then he goes just a little bit farther away, which probably doesn't take that much longer. He prays one sentence, but is gone an hour. Now, did Jesus have more to say, or did he spend 59 minutes and 45 seconds listening? Let my words be few. Why? Well, because it appears as though even when Jesus was in the darkest of nights, his words were few because he wanted to hear from his Father. And that's the way we should approach, that's the way we should engage during worship and during our, our prayer Come to God to listen to Him. We're not just giving our grocery list of prayer requests and moving on. 
That's what, I think that's, that's how the, the enemy would win in prayer. Is if we say, all right, I've got 90 seconds to pray, and we vomit everything out that our heart is expressing, and, and we, just, we just spit it out, and then never bother to wait for a response. Never bother to, to wait upon the Lord. You know, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. It's in us being still. It's in us waiting upon the Lord that we see His strength. And so we come to God to listen, to hear from Him, not just speak to Him. So we'll prepare our hearts before worship as we, engage, or as we gather corporately. Um, come prepared to listen and, and, and actively listen as... We are reading the Word of God, and as we're singing unto Him, be listening. And then after corporate worship, how do we act? What do we do? Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, back in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Messenger can be translated angel as well. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. And so after we have engaged corporately, after we have received from the Word of God and from the Spirit of God, what do we do? How do we respond? And very often, hearing the Word of God demands a response. When we, when we, hear, when we hear a study, when we listen, or even when we're studying on our own, we come to a point, God doesn't speak just for the sake of speaking. He wants us to change our lives, to change the trajectory of our lives. And in order to do that, a change is needed. A response is needed. But what can happen, especially in corporate worship, if you have especially a charismatic teacher or a good wordsmith, we can fall into the trap of making purely an emotional response. And it's not that an emotional response to the Word of God is bad, but an emotional response solely when it comes to the Word of God is going to leave us lacking. It's going to cause us to make a vow that we have either no ability to keep or no intention to keep. If we're, just, if we're just responding to the Word of God purely on a physical or on an emotional level, on a, on a level under the sun, let's say it that way, then the chances of us keeping a vow that we're going to make just because we're, our hearts are stirred and we're emotional about it, when the emotions are not there, we're probably not going to want to keep the vow. We're not going to think to keep the promise that we made on Sunday morning. 
when we're in the trenches on Tuesday afternoon. Because we've made it just purely on an emotional basis. An emotional response by itself often leads to unkept vows. Do we have an example of this in Scripture? (laughs) Yeah. Our buddy Peter. Peter making just purely an emotional response? Yeah, in fact he did. And we know how it worked out. It was probably his most known flaw. Matthew 26, again, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written. Now, pause there. Jesus said, all of you will be made to stumble. Jesus always spoke the truth. He never made a mistake. He never faltered in anything he said. And he said, all of you. He's looking at the 12 disciples. Peter standing there. Peter should have just known from that point that that was the truth. Because Jesus doesn't speak anything but the truth. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's even speaking of the restoration that will happen. But Peter, making an emotional response, verse 33 of Matthew 26, said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Hear it? It's a, oh, that's not true. And it is either his anger or his pride or something stirred up inside of him, and he he comes back with this emotion to say, ah, that's not true, even though he knows it's true. um, Jesus said to him, assuredly, like, there's no doubt about this, Peter. I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter's not... Silenced by that, though, he continues to stuff his foot in his mouth. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And listen to this. And so said all of the disciples. So Peter's response, emotional response, stirs the emotions of everybody else. And they're like, yeah! It's like a locker room halftime pep talk. Oh, we're we're all dying with you! Emotional responses lead to broken vows. So, we need to be cautious, like it says in verse 6, that we don't let our mouth cause our flesh to sin. Nor we say before the messenger of God, oh, I didn't mean it. It's like, yeah, I, 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 was, I was, you know, I said that I was going to quit swearing. And, and, you know, I, I said I was going to quit drinking, but I, you know, here it is Tuesday and I didn't really, I didn't really mean it. I just, it was, how about we don't put ourselves in that response? How about we don't put ourselves in that situation? I'm going to start my diet next week. Now is 2017. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? I don't know about you, but that makes me nervous to consider. And, and you think about it in 1 Peter, where, where Peter would say, you know what, guys, if, if you're sinning against your wife, don't think that God's going to hear your prayer. That's, that's something similar here. Why would you make a vow that you don't intend to keep or you're not able to keep and 
God's not going to listen to that and, and actually work against you? I don't want to be in that situation. I want to be on God's team as much as I can be. And that's what the end of verse 7 would say. But fear God. Now fear doesn't mean be afraid of God. And I, I like to make that clear every time I say it. That fear there means have a deep reverence for God. And it's in that deep reverence that you and I engage intentionally in all that we do. It's when we have that fear of God that we come into church prepared. We spend the time coming to church tilling the soil of our heart. It's when we have that deep reverence and fear of God that we spend the hour or hour and 15 minutes of a service fully engaged, expecting that we would hear from God. Enter expectantly when we gather corporately. Trust that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that he wants to speak to us. Come with ears to hear. Let's be slow to speak. And then when the service ends, and God has stirred our heart, more than just the emotional, it can include the emotional, but on a spiritual level as well, that we feel as though it's time for us to make a change, then don't tread on that ground lightly. Take it seriously and honor the vow that you make. As he said, it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and break it. And that all stems from that last sentence there in verse 7, that we would fear God. Us, us having that deep reverence teaches us how to act at church before, during, and after, how we live our lives. Amen? Amen. So we'll stop there for tonight. and uh, We'll finish it up next week. Let's rise up. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Thank you that we can hear from you through your word, through the power of your spirit. Lord, for all the broken vows that I've made before you, I thank you that your grace covers them, that through the blood of Jesus that I'm forgiven. Thank you for all the times that I've sounded like Peter. I'll go to the end of the world and beyond with you, Lord, just to, to break that vow by the next day. Jesus, you went to the cross for that. Thank you, Lord, that in you there is hope, life eternal. Father, I pray that as your people, we would take seriously our gatherings. Lord, that we would enter expectantly, wanting to hear from you. God, you're good to us. So we stand in awe of you, as we sang earlier. In Jesus' name, amen.